It's episode 13 of the Stick to Syracuse podcast. My name is Brent Dax. So glad to have you here. we got a great show lined up for you today. We're talking Syracuse Mets and Tim Tebow with broadcaster Michael Tricarico. There's been a lot of hype about Tebow, where he goes and what he does, but how has he been on the field? Our friend curator Bob from the Onondaga Historical Association comes by again with a pretty cool history lesson linking Teddy Roosevelt to the building of Archbold Stadium in Syracuse. On the sound scene, Kathleen Mason from K-Mace Productions chats with, and we even get a little acoustic version of Tanksley. Hey, how'd you find us today on the Stick to Syracuse podcast? Did you follow the link through on Syracuse.com or on social media? Both great ways to find us, but don't forget that you can subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Just hit that subscribe button and a new episode will pop up when they're ready. The Stick to Syracuse podcast comes out every month. Hey, Just Joe, what do you say you get this party started for us? Behind SU Sports, snowstorm weather we pose. Stick Syracuse today. Soft potatoes, high top dogs, dynasty barbecue all year long. Stick to Syracuse today. It's raining, it's snowing, it don't know where it's going. Stick to Syracuse today. Ladies and gentlemen, your host of Stick to Syracuse, Brent X. Michael Tricarico is only 23 years old, yet sits in a position as a play-by-play announcer for a AAA baseball team, in this case, our hometown Syracuse Mets. What's it been like to watch the Tim Tebow phenomenon in city after city, and what's been the reaction to the changeover from the Syracuse Chiefs to the Syracuse Mets? Now that we're a month into the season and the Tebow fever has calmed down somewhat, I thought it would be good to check in with Michael and see how things are going at the ball. So, Mike, it's really struck me because up until about last year, I still had people calling the Sky Chiefs. I think people have embraced this change. I think people realize they're the Mets. They've turned the page. It's no longer the Chiefs. The Chiefs certainly will always have its place in Syracuse history. But even in just a month, it's like people know that. It's the Mets. I, I, have you kind of noticed that too, being here at the ballpark? It's been the same thing for me, honestly. Um, people really have embraced both the name change from Chiefs to Mets and then the New York Mets in general being here and, and having their top minor league affiliate here. I know I was surprised, and I think a lot of other people in our front office were surprised at just how many Mets fans that we have run into over the last couple of months. I was here during the offseason helping out in the team store and you just see the amount of people coming saying, I've been a Mets fan my entire life, and I've been waiting for this, waiting for uh, the New York Mets to have their, their AAA team here in Syracuse. And then you hear about all of the fans excited to buy tickets. And even family members here in central New York that maybe themselves aren't Mets fans, but they have family members that are Mets fans living elsewhere. And working in the team store, I, I was able to uh, fill some online orders. We were sending them to California, Arizona, a couple to Canada. I mean, it's just amazing just the, the outreach of, of the New York Mets fan base. And, and I think people here in central New York really have embraced it, even if they're not Mets fans. I know a lot of people that, that said, 
I supported the the Syracuse baseball team here. And you know what? The New York Mets being here, maybe I'm not a Mets fan, but them being here is a really good thing for keeping professional baseball here in Syracuse. And and I agree with with those people that that share that sentiment. And you've noticed it on the road too, right? There's Mets fans popping up all over the place. Absolutely. We were in Rochester and I, I saw more New York Mets jerseys, a lot more orange and blue than there were any Rochester jerseys in, in the crowd. And our dugout was on the third base side and just the amount of people that before the game, I mean, I'm talking an hour before the game, just lining up down the third base and left field line to try and get autographs from from our players. And of course, you have the Tim Tebow's, but you also have Rajay Davis and Carlos Gomez and Adani Echevarria, all these guys that have, uh, for, for some of these guys, more than a decade of major league experience. So I think that combined with the fact that there are New York Mets fans here in, in central New York, uh, has has led to not just in Rochester, but even in Scranton, right? Everywhere you go, you think the Yankees are, are the biggest draw. The weather wasn't great in Scranton. There were more New York Mets jerseys and, and fans wearing New York Mets apparel than there were wearing New York Yankees apparel down in, in Scranton. And I, I don't know if there's any other team that, that can say that. This can go in two different directions, so feel free to answer them in both ways, both on the field and off. But now that it's really settled in, it's a month in. Now, the Mets were part of this last year, but, of course, it was a crossover thing. Now that they're fully in charge, what is the noticeable differences to you with the Mets being a part of this organization versus the Nationals the past few years? Well, I think the Mets certainly have a vested interest in their players. I mean, one of one of the reasons behind this move, not just in, in, in trying to create more of a, a New York Mets fan base in central New York, but think it was also to make life easier for the players having to shuttle players from las vegas where they were the last few years to new york city was it just it, it doesn't work logistically it's, it's not great so now you're a 40 minute flight away from new york city we've had a couple of players already drive whether it's from syracuse or from the road in, in rochester or scranton they've they've driven to new york city to city field to join the team um it just makes life easier for the players so i think um, one of the biggest changes is just the New York Mets have certainly listened to any feedback our players have had that our players maybe have shared with Jason Smorrell, our general manager. Jason's been able to pass it up the ladder. And maybe if it's, um, you know, the players want to try and leave a day early to get to a, a road location or some situations like that or, or having an extra bus on the road to, to make life easier for, for the players where they're not all scrunched into one bus, things like that that uh, are some more behind-the-scenes stuff people might not know about, but it's those types of things that you're not always able to accommodate the players. But when you own the team, right, and your AAA players are here, you want to try and make them as comfortable as possible. And I think that's um, just an interesting change that you don't always see in in minor league baseball because there are so few major league teams that have ownership stakes in, in minor league franchises. One thing that really stood out when we saw the roster come together about a month ago was this was one of the most veteran teams, not only in AAA baseball, but all professional baseball when you really added it up. How much of that has been an advantage for this team? Because here, as we chat here, this is a first-place baseball team. Yeah, it's a, been a huge difference. I mean, we, we played Lehigh Valley this past series, and the Iron Pigs were the best team in the league. Syracuse crushed them 33-11, to outscoring them in the first three games of that series. I mean, it, it wasn't even a contest, and that was the best baseball that this team has played all year. What's interesting about it is 
a lot of that veteran experience actually comes on the position player side. But this team is in first place really because of the pitching. This is a pitching staff that, that leads the league in earned run average, and the hitting was near the bottom of the league. In fact, it was in last place just as, uh, as of a couple of days ago. But I think what you saw was the pitching staff kept the team in games. It kept games low scoring. And then that experience, late in games, you get those big hits, you get the timely hits. And I think that's where you're really seeing the experience of this team. And I'll tell you, in the clubhouse, it would be easy sometimes if you get one or two guys in the clubhouse that are, are longtime major leaguers that just might feel like, geez, what am I doing in AAA? And there's a lot of guys on this team that, that could feel that way. And I'll tell you, this is the best group of guys I've, I've ever been around in a clubhouse. Not that I've been in minor league baseball for a long time, but... Not just myself, I've talked to other people in our front office uh, and other people that have just dealt with our team in general, and, and they've had the, the same thought and, and shared the same sentiment that this team is just different than other teams. And I think it helps that it's a large group of major league veterans that are here as opposed to just one or two guys. So it's an interesting dynamic, and I think that, that veteran leadership is is one of the main reasons why this team is where it is in the standings okay brownie points for me because i got about three questions in before it came up but gotta know about tebow how tim's doing not only what you see day in and day out on the baseball field but you've been on the road a few times now and seeing that reaction to when he goes to a different city and the media and the fans in those cities react to him what's the tebow experience been like on both fronts it's it's honestly something that I expect it to be a, a really big thing, but I don't know if I expect it to be as big as it, it has been. Everywhere you go, no matter whether it's Pawtucket, Rochester, Scranton, Lehigh Valley, the places we've been, everything is Tim Tebow, Tim Tebow, Tim Tebow. It doesn't matter if, if he's 4 for 4 or 0 for 4. He always has drawn a crowd, like you mentioned with the media. I mean, he's, uh, he, he's one of those guys that no matter where you go, people want to talk to him because there's always an interest in, in what he's doing, whether it's on the baseball field or some of the charity work he's done or the football stuff he's done. When we're in Pawtucket, some of the questions were the, the couple of minutes, the cup of coffee he spent with the New England Patriots and Bill Belichick and what it's like to be with Tom Brady. Um, so it's things like that. And then just from a, a fan perspective, you have people that may have never been to a baseball game or don't really care about baseball, but they've heard about Tim Tebow and they know who Tim Tebow is. We even had our, our education day here where you have, you know, a couple thousand, six, seven, eight thousand kids here, and Tim Tebow comes to the plate, and he always gets the, the biggest round of applause, and you have kids yelling, Tebow, Tebow. It's, it's just amazing <laughs> that so many people across a wide spectrum of uh, sports fans or non-sports fans, a wide spectrum of age differences between these fans, they know who Tim Tebow is, and, and it's really something that's fascinating to see. How's it been on the baseball field for him? He's struggling a little bit. I mean, obviously, the numbers just show that he's struggling, and uh, that's something that you know he'll, he'll be the first one to admit. Yeah, I'm struggling. But at the same time, I don't. It's cliche to say there's there's not a harder worker than him, so I won't say there's nobody that works harder than him. But he's definitely one of the hardest working guys there. He's he's always willing to learn. I think the the amount of knowledge that he wants to gain, and it, it could be as small as he takes a pitch. Or, or he swings at a pitch, right? Swings and misses, and he'll turn and ask the umpire, "Would that have been called a strike or not?" And I think I've have seen even in these couple of weeks where maybe the batting average isn't where he wants it to be for sure, but you see that the the picking up of what is gonna, the strike zone going to be, his just um, demeanor at the plate, I think, has evolved over just the, the couple of weeks. Learning what the strike zone is at this level as opposed to some different levels, uh, learning what different pitchers are going to throw. You, 
we have a great uh, coaching staff that does so much advanced scouting and they have, you know, what percentage of pitches each guy throws that these guys are going to face. And, and Tim's always um, trying to learn those things. He's always talking. I mean, it, this is a good opportunity for him and all of our younger players that you have guys like Rajay Davis and Carlos Gomez and Gregor Blanco that some of these younger or less experienced guys can now turn to those guys and ask them um, about their experience in, in the big leagues. And I think Tim has taken advantage of, of all of those opportunities. So yeah, he, he hasn't had a great start to the season, but he has had a couple of big hits in, in some of our early games. That's for sure. He's up to eight RBIs um, for the season and, and, and he's been able to come up with guys on base. And while he doesn't always deliver, sometimes he comes up with those timely hits, just like everyone else on this team. Michael, there's been a real line of people that have come out of this very booth that we're sitting in. We're in the, the broadcast booth at NBT bank stadium that have gone on to major league baseball e- even recently. So when you look back at who has been in this position as the voice of then the chiefs, now, of course, the Mets, what have you learned from them? The lessons going all the way back to some names that maybe you didn't even know right up till recently with Jason Benetti, who's now with the Chicago White Sox, and, and Kevin Brown, who's, who's with the Baltimore Orioles. It's it's really surreal <laughs> to be in this position um, and and, and I, to be able to do so at such a young age. I mean, it's one of those things when I was first hired by Eric Galanti last season, um, before the start of the season, it was one of those things that having interned in the broadcast booth in 2014, I'd always hoped I'd be able to get back here as as one of the, the main broadcasters, and I've been fortunate to be able to, to do that. And just those recent guys, Jason Bedetti and Kevin Brown, those two, they might have the biggest effect out of anyone in my broadcasting career. I interned under both of them when I was here in, in 2014, and just being able to see what they do on a daily basis, being able to broadcast alongside um, both of them. I, I was fortunate. 2014 was the year that Jason left about three quarters of the way through because he had an opportunity at ESPN. So that was after my freshman year of college. And I, I was tossed in to be able to call some some AAA baseball games. Get so your money's worth right, there. Yeah, it's one of yeah. those things where I look back and I listen back to some of those tapes and I go, how did how did ever, anyone ever let me on, on air? But I think we all in this industry do that, right? We listen to things even, even from earlier in, in this year and you go, geez, what was I thinking saying that? But then there's other times where you you look back and you go, man, that was something I, I did really well. And how can I replicate that? So you look at, at the long lineage of the broadcasters that have been up here. You know, Sean McDonough, if, if we're going all the way back, and, and Dan Horde, who's now in, in Cincinnati. And it's one of those things that, um, at least for myself, I'm always trying to learn from those guys. And, and while I'm not able to learn necessarily directly from them, some of them I, I might be able to send some tapes to and, and get some feedback but I can watch their games and, and see what they do now and, and try and try and not replicate what they do, but see what path they took and what worked well for them. And you try and take little things from different broadcasters. And, and I've tried to do that and, and put those things into what I have done. And, um, you know, sometimes I listen and I go, you know, oh, Jason did this really well and a couple years ago, or Jason did this really well this year, Kevin did this really well, and I want to try and take those those couple of vocabulary words. How did they describe this pitch or that pitch? Um, and, and try and take those things and put them into what I've done. And, and, I, and, and Jason and Kevin have both been so, uh, just so good with their time, um, where at any given point I can send them a half inning or I can call them up with, with 
with something that's going on this season, broadcast related or off the field related, the, the media relations side of it, and just ask them what their advice is in, in that situation. And uh, they're so willing to, to give that advice and offer it to me. And, and there are people who I would not just call mentors, but really good friends for me. Final question for you, Michael. It's something I like to ask a lot of guests that, that come on the Stick to Syracuse podcast with us here. Feel free to put a baseball tent on this if you okay. want, but I'm just going to ask it. What makes Syracuse Syracuse? The people. The people of Syracuse make Syracuse Syracuse. I think if you, you talk to anyone, you talk to most people, at least in this town, there's a pride in, in being from here and living here. Um, I'm fortunate enough to have grown up in North Syracuse, to have gone to school at, at Syracuse, and now I, I work here at Syracuse. So uh, not that I have to stay here or, or, or necessarily want to stay here my entire life, but I enjoy being in Syracuse. I enjoy living in Syracuse, and I enjoy, enjoy interacting with all of the people here. And I think there's so much pride in the university, so much pride in you know, whether it's Dinosaur Barbecue, right, or, or any of those, the Tullys, right, Wegmans, things like that that are, are here in upstate New York and here in, in central New York. I think those are the types of things where if, if, if you live in Syracuse, maybe you can trash Syracuse a little bit for certain things. But if anyone else outside of Syracuse tries to say anything bad about this city, then you're going to jump right on them. So I think the people of this city uh, here in Syracuse, that's, that's what makes Syracuse so, so good. Hey, what do you say? Have a happy day, cause we're living in Syracuse. So we are back here in Bob's spectacular office of history, and I am ready for our lesson this week. Now, I, Bob doesn't tell me what we're going to discuss beforehand, so I am I am reacting as, as you are as a listener. As I like to say, as we've done this a couple of times, it kind of falls in the oh yeah category yeah. or the oh wow category so i'm curious where we're going well today, hopefully sir. we've got a little bit of both today Brent. so it's it's may this is the may episode of our historical journey in syracuse and um i was uh, wrote a story a little while ago about james roscoe day who was chancellor of syracuse university for a very long time basically from 1893 until the 1920s Built most of the buildings that you or I would be familiar with walking around campus. One of the buildings that went up during his time there was the great Archibald Stadium. Okay. So Archibald Stadium, named after John D. Archibald, one of the richest men in the world, was a vice president of Standard Oil, had worked closely with John D. Rockefeller from 1872 right up through. Becomes chancellor, uh, becomes president of the Board of Trustees at Syracuse in 1893, hires James Roscoe Day. Now, this... How do we get to this? Right? There's a big political maelstrom. Uh, President Teddy Roosevelt, t- trust-busting Teddy Roosevelt, 1906, um, comes out and basically attacks Standard Oil. Now, this is all happening while construction is about to begin on Archibald Stadium. Stadium. Okay. So Chancellor Day goes out in the press, the Syracuse Herald, and basically writes this scathing critique of President Roosevelt, wow. calling him an anarchist saying that he wants to be a dictator um, for his attacks on Standard Oil. And so it starts this phenomenal back and forth, not only here in Syracuse, but this sort of spills out into the national press, the New York world. Hearst writes about it. It's in the New York Times. It's in Chicago. So it's this phenomenal sort of convergence of politics, sports, money. Amazing. That's incredible. And it's it's timely, too, because now we have the Carrier Dome – is being renovated. And over the next few years, we're going to see some drastic changes made to the Carrier Dome. Thankfully, nobody's fighting about this. Everything seems to be in line. The money's in place. The cranes are going up and and things are going to happen there. But I I think people like me 
By the way, that kind of falls in a different category. That's not an oh wow or an oh yeah. It's kind of in the middle. I've heard some of that, okay. but didn't know the Teddy Roosevelt part of it. Didn't know all the politics that were involved. Yeah. So I guess I'll go with a hmm, hmm. for this week because oh, right. I, I, it was kind of a mixture of things there. But so Archbold does get built. It does. And from what you remember, for what you know, was was Archbold like groundbreaking? Was yes. it just kind of a cookie cutter stadium at the time? Like what? Archbold well, Stadium. What's the deal with Archbold? Archbold Stadium is the first fully completed bowl concrete stadium in the United States. So the first concrete stadium is built at Harvard, which the Ivy League was the center of college football in those days. But Syracuse, to compete, right, they build this monstrosity. $14 million in today's money is what it costs to build Archbald. Over the course of his time as president of the board of trustees, Archbald gives $90 million in 2018 dollars so a significant amount of money but archbald is a magnificent structure like the the arches on the way in it hold about thirty thousand people so for its time and for its day it was a magnificent structure i remember having a conversation with my father one time about he was telling me about some of the players he saw in the games that he saw he said you know what dad i regret that i i, I didn't get to see it he goes no you don't <laughs> that's it because i've heard the same thing yeah because then it's in its later days it certainly needed to be replaced it and did. then, so when the Carrier Dome was built, was it built on the same site as Archbold? They basically just wrecked Archbold and put it right there? Was it moved that's, a little that's bit? That's exactly or? what okay. they did. It is, it is almost exactly on the footprint. So when you go to the dome, you can when as you walk in, you walk sort of by Archbold Gymnasium, where which was also built right after they finished Archbold Stadium, more of Archbold Standard Oil money. And that is, of course, where the basketball team played until they built Manly Fieldhouse in 1962. So you could connect. There used to actually be a connection between the stadium and Archbold Gymnasium that you could walk underneath uh, the tunnel to go back and forth. To. If I try to conquer this mountain, will you shoot me down? I'm your favorite target, dodging bullets from your tongue. If I build myself a prison, will you block the light? Blame me for the darkness in the Singer-songwriter with a sound that is a creative blend of soul, rock, pop, and hip-hop influences. This singer-songwriter, self-taught guitarist, and pianist was born in central New York and started playing instruments at the age of 15. He recently studied under the legendary Carlos Alomar, David Bowie's guitarist, musical arranger, and collaborator for decades, and local jazz greats Ronnie Lee and Nancy Kelly. Tanksley joins Kathleen Mason on the sound scene from Cafe Kubal Studios in downtown Syracuse. I want to know, because I didn't know this before, you picked up, what, a guitar first? I did, I did, when I was 15 years old. 15. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I got my first acoustic guitar as like a really like low-level Yamaha, one of those starter, uh-huh. starter Student ones. model. Yeah, yep. <laughs> I thought it sounded so good, though. Um, yeah, I just started uh, plucking around um, and just following, like, my ear. Pretty much, like, whatever I heard, I just tried to play it. Or sometimes I'd, like, play along with songs and stuff mm-hmm. and backing tracks on YouTube, that kind of thing. So what about the keyboards? Um, keyboards, Did I mean, it- I didn't really start teaching myself piano until 15, but mm-hmm. I'd always kind of 
my grandma had a piano. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the couple of times when we'd visit her. So he plunked uh, around a little bit. Yeah, and, yeah. Wow. Yep. He does not plunk around anymore. Like that, <laughs> the, the, I, I would never know. To me, you sounded like I would have bet that you woke up, you know, when you were four and like stumbled onto the piano and the guitar and like you'd been doing it all this time. I left a smile waiting for you in candlelit worry lines really rushing now suffered words whisk through the door your face placed defense again against wicked love and foe American in hand living on a sorry prayer Wonderful water, wash over the hour. Who am I and will my children be as blue? Suddenly I'm crying on two friends. We've all felt a strain sometimes. Tell me what, who, who are your influences and where do you see your music heading? Um, I mean, my major influences, that's a, that's a big kind of diverse list, mm-hmm. but um, I'll try to keep it relatively sure. concise. Um, I mean, in, soul, in terms of like soul music, that's kind of the base of what mm-hmm. we do. Um, it's like Stevie Wonder. Um, I like John Legend a lot. Mm-hmm. I've always liked John Legend. He kind of got me into singing. I love his voice. Yeah, he's amazing. Um, who else? Yeah, Stevie, John. Um, I like... Pink Floyd a lot. Mm-hmm. I like Led Zeppelin in terms of rock stuff. I was I gonna like, say sometimes you skew a little hard too, which is great. Yeah, I love it. But it the, but it's a really good mix. <laughs> it's a really good mix. I like your your take on both thanks, for thanks. you. Yeah, I call it art soul. Most recently, I was trying to think about like I what like to call that. it. It's the genre, like art rock and soul music combined. Yeah, very cool. Um, what's up next for you? Uh, right now, I'm in the studio with uh, Bob Cudarella, and he's my executive producer right now for our, the next EP that'll be coming out. And uh, it's been great working with him. I went to Cali not too long ago and mm-hmm. worked, uh, met them, and we've been working on some management and some, you know, the next steps. So just mm-hmm. looking at like getting the music right before we roll out with everything. Right. But, uh, yeah. I know it's it's been a while since I've released anything, but I really want to make it get it right. Yes, this time. Yes, take your time. You're yeah. trust me. Your your name flies around all the time. You oh, are not you are not you know forgotten by any means. Um, so take your time. Um, so we'll be looking for that. Do, do you have a release date or? I don't. Okay. Not right now. Not right now. But um, I I could say probably before the end of this year. Can you give us a little bit of a, a tiny, tiny tidbit of of anything that's on it or anything that you, I mean, I know you don't want to, you know, but just just a little leak. 
A lone case will go unturned And soiled gems left untold That they're just a gleam away From that greener ground The jagged fin left me elated And now I see through his window panes And show him others that be lurking on the shores Others with the words for swords You are my everything you are this world, and that's what I'll fight for, because I believe in love. And now, sounds from our next episode. Todd Hoban is an American singer-songwriter and founder of the Todd Hoban Band. They play thousands of shows and share the stage with the greatest bands of their time, the Beach Boys and the Kinks to the Allman Brothers that's next time on the stick to syracuse podcast we thank you for listening to episode 13 we remind you you can subscribe to the stick to syracuse podcast on itunes spotify google play and soundcloud i'm brent axe until next time read all about it in the herald america just the other day i found myself talking to a wall don't know why makes no sense at all oh we dream believe are in our glory just before we fall but i got my dream my own peculiar story don't leave before you find out if it's true because when it is time to take the final inventory gotta believe